you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, you can look in the pew rack there in front of you and join us in turning to Hebrews 11. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews uh, for some time now, and in recent weeks we've been in this uh, very well-known chapter of Hebrews, this chapter that's often referred to as the Hall of Faith, because it's here in Hebrews 11 that we have that a definition of faith that we often hold on to, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And it's here that the writer of Hebrews has been walking through biblical history to point out to us examples of faith. And so he's walked us through the lives of Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, and showed us how they were people who walked by faith, trusted in God, and they were declared righteous by their faith. And now we come to a section in Hebrews 11 uh, where the writer pauses in referring uh, to someone new in biblical history just to tell us more about what biblical faith looks like. And so if you've been with us, we've been talking about the difference between biblical faith and blind faith. Blind faith is that which the world often attributes to faith. They think of faith as, as blind, as having no evidence, no assurance, but we find that the scripture calls us to something very different. The scripture calls us to biblical faith, a faith based in the evidence and the assurance of God's word and God's promises. And that's the example that we see throughout Hebrews 11, and that's a further example of what we'll see as we walk through this text today. And so with that introduction, we're going to look at Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read today's passage for us remembering that this is the holy and inspired word of God, and this is what God says to us, his church, today. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If you would pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would hold fast to the gospel, and that our hope would be in Jesus today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. That hymn that we just sang, Amazing Grace, is, uh, I think, most likely the most famous hymn ever translated, or ever in the English language. It was written, as many of you know, uh, by John Newton. Newton was a great preacher in the 18th century, and as we sang, even if you don't know anything about Newton, you, you heard part of his testimony there. Uh, he was a wretch. He was someone who ran far from God and who rebelled greatly against God, but God pursued Newton and eventually brought him to faith in Christ, and then he became a pastor, a great encourager to many, a writer of great hymns like Amazing Grace, and a man who walked by faith until the day that he died and encouraged others to do the same. In fact, uh, just about a month before his death, 
Newton wrote this about his faith. It is a great thing to die. And when flesh and heart fail to have God for the strength of our heart and our portion forever, I know whom I have believed. And he is able to keep that which I have committed against that great day. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me that day. Newton was a man who was saved by faith, who lived by faith, and who died in faith. And he is an example to us, much like the examples that we've been reading about in Hebrews chapter 11, where in today's passage, the writer tells us these all died in faith, that their faith was intact. And in this encouragement to us, the writer's helping us to, again, better understand of what true, genuine, biblical faith looks like. And so I want to continue as we walk through this passage today, distinguishing between blind faith and biblical faith by looking at four more truths that we learn about biblical faith through these verses. Now the first one I put there in your outline is this, point one, we see that biblical faith endures until the end. Biblical faith endures until the end. And the writer here tells us in verse 13, now these all died in faith. And the first question for us should be, well, who are the all? We could assume that all are the people that he's already written about in Hebrews 11, and yet we know that all of the people that have been mentioned aren't people that died in faith. For example, when he talks about Abel, he also talks about Cain. And we know from Cain's testimony and story, Cain was not one who walked in faith, lived by faith, or died in faith. And so the all is likely not a reference to all the people who have been mentioned. And in fact, as you read the verses following, the indication here is that who he's referring to are Abraham, Sarah, and their descendants. Especially as you get into the following verses when he talks about leaving a land and going to a homeland. There's a picture there of what he describes about Abraham who was called in Genesis 12 to leave the land of his fathers and to go to the land of promise, to the land of Canaan. He said these all, again, Abraham, Sarah, and others, they died in faith. Now remember the context of the letter that we're reading here today. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers in the early church who were suffering great persecution and suffering. And in the midst of their persecution and suffering, many of them had abandoned the faith and left the faith. And now the writer of Hebrews is writing to encourage those who've remained faithful to endure and to persevere, to hold fast, to stand firm, to hold on to their confidence in Christ. And so he holds up for them an example not just of those who had at one time placed their faith in Christ, but of those who had endured and who had died in that faith. It's a reminder to us of what true, genuine, saving faith looks like, especially when we consider people like Abraham. If you study through Abraham's life, you find that Abraham did not have a perfect faith by any means. Abraham struggled. Abraham sinned. Abraham fell short. Abraham did not have a perfect faith. But what Abraham had was a persevering faith. And that is the faith that we are called to. And it's a reminder to us that biblical faith is not just marked by a decision, but biblical faith is marked by dedication. Biblical faith is not just marked by walking an aisle, but biblical faith is marked by walking in faith. Now consider the difference between those two. 
many of you have probably grown up in this church or some other, and you've probably witnessed people who years ago, they walked an aisle in a Baptist church. Or perhaps they came forward and professed a decision. And yet as you look around today, there's no dedication to the Lord in their life. There's no walk of faith in their life. Well, what does that say about their faith? Well, the scripture says that's not what genuine saving faith is. In fact, the scripture points out to us in 1 John 2.19 that there will be those who go out from us because they were never of us. If they were truly of us, they would have stayed, but they went out that it might become clear. And this is very significant for us in our context today in the Bible Belt here at Bloomfield Baptist Church because we are surrounded in a community by people who will hold on to a decision and people who will hold on to walking an aisle and yet they have no dedication and they have no walk of faith. The picture we have here in Hebrews 11 is of those who were dedicated, who endured, who persevered. The picture we have in Hebrews 11 of Abraham and others are those who endure until the end. And these are the ones that Jesus said would be saved. In fact, Jesus says very clearly in Matthew 24, verse 13, the one who endures until the end will be saved. And so the genuine mark, the, the true sign of biblical faith is those who endure and those who persevere. Again, not perfectly. It's not a perfect faith, but it's a persevering faith. It's a faith, that in, a faith that endures. And in this case, as we see in Hebrews 11, it's a faith that endures until the end. And why does it do that? Because point two, biblical faith lives with an eternal perspective. Biblical faith lives with an eternal perspective. Notice what he says about those who died in faith in verse 13. It says, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now again, consider who the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. He's talking about Abraham and Sarah. And if you remember in Genesis 12 and following, what is it that God promised to Abraham and Sarah? He promised them heirs. He promised them nations. He promised them that heirs would come from them, as many as the stars in the sky and sand on the seashore. And yet in their lifetime, they did not see this come to fruition. They saw the birth of a child, but they did not see the birth of nations. And what the writer here is helping us to see is that Abraham and Sarah had a perspective that was greater than their temporal life. That they were looking to the greater promises of God understanding that they might not see those promises come to fruition in their lifetime, that they may not even see those promises come to fruition this side of eternity. But they lived with an eternal perspective, a perspective that considers the greatness of eternity over our temporal lives. And that's the perspective that we're called to have as well. And yet, it's very, very easy for us to get caught in having just a temporal, short-term perspective. This week I was under the weather, and so I spent a lot of time just laying on the couch, resting and recovering, and so I watched a lot of news this week, too much news. Uh, and if you watch much of the news this week, you know that the stock market just plunged this week. And so if you're one who 
gets real upset about those things, not a good week for you. Uh, in fact, as I watched throughout the week, folks who started the week with X number of dollars in their retirement account probably have 10, 15% less than that now at the end of the week. And as they were interviewing people about this stock market plunge, they were very different responses. Uh, there were some that they interviewed who the sky is falling. Uh, they were in chaos. They were lamenting how much money they had lost and how much wealth that was gone, and they were very upset. And then there were other people that were interviewed who said, I'm putting more money in. Everything's on sale right now. Two very different perspectives about the same situation. Well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is some had a very short-term perspective and some had a long-term perspective. Now, I am not a stock market expert by any stretch of the imagination, but what little I do know is this. You just put money in over time, and you don't sit there and pay attention to every time it goes way up and every time it goes way down. Very few people do well at playing the market. You take a long-term approach. But for us in our culture, we are very short-sighted people. And this especially comes into play when we consider our faith. We are so temporal-minded that we look for everything now. We are a microwave society. We want to pray about something and have an answer that day. We want to ask for a blessing and have it that day. And we take our sights off of the big picture, which is much greater than the stock market. It's the big picture of God's economy and God's kingdom and his sovereign plan for all time. And the picture I believe we see here in Hebrews 11 focuses our attention to have that long-term vision, that eternal perspective. Remember the first time I was encouraged to even consider what this looked like. I've shared with many of you before, I became a Christian during my freshman year college. And shortly after that, I went to a, a talk on campus that was part of a campus ministry I was involved in. And, and the man who came and spoke that night was talking about having an eternal perspective and I'd never even heard that term before I didn't really understood understand what that meant and I'll never forget this illustration he gave I've, I've shared it many times before I'll share it again he said here's what I want you to imagine he said to that room full of students I was in that night he said imagine you were to take a rope and I was to hold one end of that rope here and that rope would stretch out for miles and miles and miles and someone took the other end of that rope and they just kept going and going and going five miles, ten miles. Imagine that rope stretched out for a hundred miles, for a thousand miles. Imagine that rope could stretch from one coast to the other. And somewhere around the middle of the country, somebody came along with a Sharpie and just put a little dot on it. He said, that gives you a little bit of a perspective of what your life on earth is like compared to the vastness of eternity. And then he gave us this challenge. He said, are you going to invest your life in the dot are you going to invest your life in the line? That's what it means to have an eternal perspective. To live for the things of God that will never perish. To live for that which is eternal. Not to have our world rocked by everything that happens in this temporal life, but to keep our bigger focus on the things of God and that eternal perspective. And that's the picture, I believe, that we see here with Abraham. And that's the picture that we see here in Hebrews 11. One commentator I read said it this way, this picture we're given directly confronts a view that is quite prevalent in our time, a packaged version of Christianity that offers mainly temporal benefits. It goes like this, if you trust in Jesus, you'll do better at work, 
you'll be a better husband or wife or parent, you'll have less stress, and you'll lose weight. Certainly, Christianity does give us spiritual resources that transform this present life, resources like righteousness, peace, and joy. But how easily we forget that to be a Christian means to be persecuted in this world. The primary blessings Christianity offers do not lie in this life at all, but in the life to come. Friends, we are called to have that perspective and to live with an eternal perspective. And as we do that, then we set our focus on heaven, which is our true home. Which brings us to our third point there in your outline. Biblical faith longs for heaven. Biblical faith longs for heaven. Continuing on there, we see in verse 14 that this testimony of Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. It says, for people, speaking of them, who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Now that word homeland, it literally means their hometown. It means the place where their fathers are from. You might think of it this way. I've lived in Bloomfield for about 10 years now. I still interact with people on a consistent basis that I haven't met before. And so oftentimes I'll ask them a question. I'll say, well, are you from around here? And many times they'll say things like this. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not from around here. I'm from over in Chaplin. <laughs> oh, well, you know, that kind of is around here. Well, no, no, I'm not from around here. I'm from, my people are way over from Fairfield over there. No, no, a couple generations ago, my people moved all the way up from Springfield. Now, just some of you don't get that joke because you say that and you don't understand it. There are some of us who... We're not from Nelson County. We're from other states. And so when I say are you from around here, I mean, you know, within a day's drive or in the general area. But, but what are people saying? What are you saying when you say that? You're saying, I'm not from Bloomfield. I wasn't born in Bloomfield. My, my parents aren't from Bloomfield. No, here's where we're from. Here's the city. Here's the place. Here's the community. That's my hometown. This is where my people, my fathers, my parents, my mother, this is where we're from. That's what we refer to as our hometown. You can live somewhere most of your life, but still consider another place your hometown. Well, the picture here that's being given in Hebrews 11 is Abraham has a new homeland he's seeking. The author says real specifically, he's not talking about the homeland that he came from. He's not talking about the land of his fathers because if that's what he was referring to, he could have gone back there. Abraham was from the land of Ur. That's where his father Terah was. That's where he was in Genesis 12 where God called him to leave and go to a land he'd never been to. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that Abraham at that moment when God changed him and called him and made him his own, he had a new homeland, he had a new land of his father, because now God is his eternal father, and his true homeland was heaven. If he's speaking of his earthly homeland, he says, he could have gone right back there. He could have never left there. But he was seeking something different. In fact, he says he was seeking something better. A better country, a heavenly one. And this gives us a glimpse of Abraham's faith, and it gives us a glimpse of what it means to long for a land greater than the one that we came from. And this is what biblical faith does. Biblical faith places a desire in our heart to long for our heavenly homeland. Abraham understood that he was a child of God. 
he understood that he was called to his father's land to this better country. And so that was the land that he was seeking. And friends, that's the land that we're to seek as well. Heaven wasn't just a better country for Abraham and Sarah, for Isaac and Jacob. Heaven is a better land, a better country for us. Heaven is greater and better than any country that has ever existed on earth and any country that ever will exist on earth. Heaven is greater and better than the United States of America and any other nation. And heaven is the land that the scripture says, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, that is where your true and eternal citizenship lies. We are temporal citizens of this country or another, but we are eternally citizens of that heavenly homeland. And that's how the Bible refers to us as Christians. For example, we see Paul speaking to the Philippians, saying not to be like people who set their mind on temporal earthly things, who set their mind on their citizenship here. He says, our citizenship, Philippians 3, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That is our land and that is our king. We read as well in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, that we are strangers and aliens. We are exiles on this earth. And our true homeland is heaven. We read that we're fellow citizens, Ephesians 2, 19, with the saints and members of the household of God. And that is why we can rejoice in singing. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Why? Because that's our home. Think about this for a moment. Think about times when perhaps you've been on a trip, maybe a vacation, maybe a business trip. Maybe for some of you, you've served in the military, you've been away at war or away on duty. Think of what it is when you've been gone from home and then you return. So often there's an excitement there, there's a joy there. Why? Because now you're home. Friends, do you realize that doesn't even compare to what we will one day experience when we are truly home, when we are in our eternal home, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Because that will be the day when there's no more sin and no more suffering. That will be the day when there's no more death and no more disease. And that will be the day that we come face to face with our Lord and King Jesus Christ and we stand in His presence forever and we hear Him declare he is making all things new. And friends, a desire for that comes with a new heart. A desire for that comes when God changes us through the gospel. And if you find this morning that you don't really desire that, if you find this morning that when you're honest about it, you don't want to think about heaven, you don't want to think about eternity, you just want to live now and here, and this is the best you can imagine, then that's an indication, friend, that you don't know what it is to have a heart transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's an indication that you're living for that dot and not for that line. And God desires so much greater for you and I because he has prepared us for eternity and he has called us to a biblical faith which longs to be home in heaven. And then point four, we see that biblical faith pleases God. Biblical faith pleases God. Notice the second part of verse 16 there. 
we read this statement. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Now think for a moment about what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. God is not ashamed. The very first time we see that word ashamed in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2. You know the story of creation. God creates all things, and what does he say over and over again? It was good, it was good, it was good. Why? Because it was perfect, and it was holy, and it was righteous. In creation, there was no sin, there was no fall, there was perfect fellowship that Adam and Eve had with their creator God. And there in the garden, their creator God said to them, I've given you everything that you need here, but here is a boundary. He helped them to see they had dominion over the garden, but they didn't have all dominion. He had that. He's God. He gave them a boundary, a marker. He said, here's a tree you're not to eat of. But you know the story. They wanted to be like God. They disobeyed the command of God. They sinned and they fell. And in that moment, they felt shame. In Genesis 2, we see a very clear indication of Adam and Eve that they were not ashamed. But as soon as they sinned against God and disobeyed God, they were covered in shame. And that shame doesn't end with them. You follow through the story of biblical history and you see that shame and how it drives people to murder, how it drives people to lie, how it drives to all kinds of further sin and further darkness as people try to cover their shame and run for their shame. The story of the Old Testament is the story of this great shame upon God's people and them looking for a way to deal with their shame. And then we get to the Gospels. And as we come to the Gospels, we see one born, truly God, truly man, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, and we see someone who had no shame. He had no sin. Now listen, we live in a culture where we'll hear the saying all the time, well, there's nothing to be ashamed of. But that's a lie. There's a lot to be ashamed of. You and I are sinful. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have things to be ashamed of. Now there's some in our culture who will say, well no, that's just religious dogma. People are really good at heart. There's nothing to be ashamed of. I've asked this before, I'll ask it again. How many of you want to broadcast what's gone through your mind for the last 24 hours? I don't want to. I guarantee you this. If you knew what went through my mind on a daily basis and I knew what went through your mind on a daily basis, I wouldn't be your preacher and you wouldn't come to church here. Why? Because we're sinful people. There are depraved thoughts that come in our mind and, and the scripture teaches how to deal with those thoughts and repent of those and move away from that. But, but we're sinful, fallen people. If we could stop sinning, we would. If we could just be perfect people, we would. But the scripture helps us to understand we have a sinful condition, a sin problem. And with that, we have shame. But what do we see in Jesus? We see one who at his baptism, what does God say of him? This is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. What's the opposite of being ashamed of something? Being pleased with it. Being proud of it. You see the picture there? Here we are. Sinful, fallen man covered in shame. Here's our Messiah, Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, who has no shame, and God is pleased with him. But what does he do? He lives a perfect life, he goes to the cross, and he bears our shame for us. 
He takes on our sin and our shame, and he dies the death that we deserve. The scripture says God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might receive the righteousness of God. This beautiful, great exchange takes place on the cross. Jesus, who was perfect and flawless and without sin, takes the due penalty that you and I deserve for our sin, and he dies in our place. Why? So that we might receive the righteousness of Christ and be covered by his righteousness so that we no longer need to be ashamed. There's all kinds of stuff in our life that we could hang our heads low about. There's all kinds of things we could be ashamed of. But the good news of the gospel is this. If we will confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us. Through what? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is His blood, His righteousness that covers our shame so that we can be included in this great truth we read in Hebrews 11. God was not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham. Just think about that for a moment. When we read throughout the Old Testament, we see God often referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now think about what that would have meant for people in Abraham's day. Oh, you're the God of Abraham? You mean that Abraham who lied and said Sarah was not his wife? That Abraham jeopardized the plan of God by handing his wife over to a wicked ruler and saying she was his sister? Oh, Isaac and Jacob, those scoundrels? That's who you're the God of? But God was not ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are those who had faith in God and walked by that faith. They did not have a perfect faith but they had a persevering faith. And for that very same reason, friends, God is not ashamed to be called your God or my God either. So if you have placed your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ today, you don't need to be ashamed. And even greater than that, God is not ashamed. God is not ashamed to be called the God of Richard Carwell. And God is not ashamed to be called the God of each and every one of us this morning who has placed their faith in Jesus. But if you've not placed your faith in Christ, then friends, what are you going to do with your shame? The scripture says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And we will either trust in Christ and his payment on the cross for our sins or we'll trust in our own efforts to deal with our own shame. But the scripture tells us how that goes. Adam and Eve in their shame tried to cover their sin, but it wasn't sufficient. Many others have tried to cover their sin, and it's insufficient as well. The only thing that truly deals with our sin is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why our hope needs to lie in him. And if your hope is in Jesus today, then the good news of the gospel is, is not only is he not ashamed of you, but God is pleased with you. Abraham looked towards the day of Jesus, and he rejoiced. We look back on the day of Jesus, and we rejoice. Why? Because Christ has borne our shame for us. And because of that, we can spend eternity with God in our heavenly home. And that is the home we are called to long for. Not just today, but every day, until our dying breath, that we too might be among those in Hebrews 11 who die in faith, who endure until the end, who persevere and who hold fast. I started with a quote by John Newton. I'll end with that as well. Newton, near the end of his life, in the very last sermon he preached, 
These were his last words. He said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Friends, may that be our testimony today at Bloomfield Baptist Church as well. Yes, we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. So let's trust in Him and let's walk with Him. If you would stand together as I pray for us that we would do that very thing. Father, I thank you that Jesus Christ has paid our debt. He has borne our shame. I thank you, Father, that you are not ashamed to be called our God. And yet the reality is, Father, there are likely some this morning here who, who don't know what it is to be a child of you, who've yet to confess Christ as Lord, who have yet to believe in their heart that you raised Christ from the dead, or perhaps, Lord, they, they know these things intellectually, but they've never placed their trust in you. There may be some here this morning, Lord, that, that have made a decision, but they're not dedicated. There may be some who've walked in awe, but they're not walking in faith. I, I pray, God, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, will call them to genuine biblical faith, a life of repentance, a life of walking with you. Lord, for others who have done that, who have confess Christ and trust in Him who are seeking to walk by faith, that they, they may be dealing with shame this morning. Maybe there's areas of sin in their life that they've repented of and yet they still feel guilty about. Maybe there's things that the enemy just brings to mind. Maybe there's just things they're not dealing with. I pray that you'd help us to biblically respond to the gospel, that we would confess our sins and that we would experience your faithfulness and your justice in cleansing us from all unrighteousness. I pray that our hope would be in you, our trust would be in you. And Lord, I pray if there's some here this morning who perhaps their focus has been too much on the things of this world, too much worry, too much anxiety, just, just overwhelmed by daily events and things in their life today. Lord, perhaps they need a reminder this morning that this world's not our home, that we are strangers, that we are exiles, that our true home is heaven. Help us, Lord, to long for heaven. Help us to put our sights on heaven. And help us, Lord, as we do that, to share with others about how they might be a part of this heavenly homeland as well through faith in Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.